Welcome back to Three Black Dots with Dr. Tiffany, Dr. Karen, and Dr. Zanetta. I've been a little introspective today. I was okay. going to say, why is he, why does your thing say introspective? Why does it say introspective Z? So yeah. I've been thinking out loud, and this may be a problem in oncology. So it's been a busy week. I've been seeing a lot of patients, and I see a lot of patients in various states of health, right? So since I'm seeing a lot more patients with solid tumors, I'm really getting the full scope of oncology, right? And so something that bothers me in oncology is that, you know, we by nature, are very optimistic, right? And so we always are like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I think we know that sometimes some of our best drugs, right, may offer 10% benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And I started wondering if there is a better way that we can be more forthright because I don't think oncologists intentionally set out to not be forthright in saying things, but we know that some people with advanced cancers will not survive. Mm -hmm. And Mm so, um, in some of the other specialties, they always kind of talk about oncologists because, you know, it's like, you know, there's the joke about the oncologist trying to take somebody out of the grave and give them chemo. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know, it just started bothering me about an hour ago. Like, how can we be more honest? And maybe I'm not looking at it the right way. But I wonder if us not being as forthright breeds more mistrust. Because what patients are seeing is they're seeing people in their families, people in their communities, unfortunately, succumb to cancer. And we're saying, no, this is going to be good. And, you know, we have this next new treatment. And even if we're saying it, are we communicating it in a way that it's effective. So I was talking to Corey about it. Mm-hmm. And he always just says, well, it's cancer, Zanetta, it's cancer. But, <laughs> but, but, he, he, but he, said, he said, look, in neurology, we deal with terminal diseases, mm-hmm. right? ALS, Alzheimer's, yep. Parkinson's, right? For which there are few treatments, very For few which treatments. There are treatments, but they're, they're not very terribly right. effective. And not and and not curative. And so he says, you know, all patients with ALS, they may, we may not know how long it is, but mm-hmm. they know that this is not anything that medicine can necessarily fix. And so I don't know. It it it's it just really started bothering me. And I don't know why it started bothering me at six o'clock on a Friday. Mm. But I I, know, I I get what you're saying, um, and I felt that way at various points as well. Depends on what day you catch me. I think it's um, it's a difficult task, right? Because okay, you could have the same approach, right? 
you can go to one patient's room and you are a hero, right? For let's take this approach where you where maybe you said, all right, this this drug benefits you. There's like a 10% chance that it's going to do anything for you, right? To one family and patient, that makes you a hero mm-hmm. because they want everything. They want the numbers. They want everything straight. To the next patient and family, it makes you a demon. Right. Because not because you have taken away their hope. Right. So I think that one of the things to deal with is that uh, you kind of have to think about how you want to present things, knowing that to some people you're going to be a hero for your approach and some people you're going to be a demon. You know, and you'll be accused of, you know, taking away hope when you're saying I'm, you are trying to actually do what you think is best. I'll tell you when this became really evident to me. uh, One time I was on call and um, this book had just come, come out. uh, Oh, and I can't, it wasn't when breath becomes air, but it was. Was um, it being mortal? Yes. Thank yes. Yeah. Yes. Being mortal had just come out and I had just read it. And I was like, yes. You know, and the whole premise of his book was watching his dad's decline and how um, he watched sort of his dad lose autonomy, you know, or um, for how he wanted to live because everything was about, we got to keep your dad safe, safe, safe. And I'm paraphrasing, it's been years now, but like, let's say his dad was 85 and he was at the end of life and and he wanted to stay home. And it was like, it's not safe for you to stay home. And now you've got to be in the nursing home and your bed rails have got to be up because you can't fall out, you know? And it was like, there was no um, leeway or appreciation for him remaining autonomous. Like everything became, keep him safe at Mm -hmm. all costs, right? And so- Anyway, I started to think about that in terms of having earlier um, goals of care discussions, right? And hospice discussions and all of that, um, which I always did. But like, I was really hell-bent in this one particular week on call. Um, And long story short, it wound up with me being reported to the hospital (laughs) for for introducing um, like a goals of care discussion like in a 90 year old patient who wanted to go home Hmm. Um, because the family really took issue. Um, They didn't want to hear that. Exactly that. Right. That like I was sacrificing his safety to kind of listen to him wanting to go home and go on hospice. So this whole um, issue related to, um, this whole thing came up for me as a medical student, and it's one of the reasons why I went into oncology, frankly, um, because I was on an oncology service, and there was a patient who was there who had metastatic breast cancer, and uh, for the past couple of weeks, she had literally been admitted to the hospital almost every week for the past month with a new broken bone. 
because her bones were so riddled with cancer and she was in so much pain. And the surgeons kept going in and fixing and they would radiate and they'd be like, okay, next line of therapy. And, and, and it was just, it broke my heart because this woman was in such agony. And I asked her because I was, you know, on the radiation rotation at the time. I was like, you know, what do you want to do? She's like, I just want to go home. I just want to, I just want to be able to die. I just want to be able to die in peace. And I, it got started me thinking about the fact that in the United States, we do not deal with death well in general. Uh, we don't think about the circle of life. We don't think about it as a part of the normal process. Other cultures do it in a very different way and that it, you know, death isn't oftentimes seen as the end, but the beginning of something new. Or if it, even if it is an end, it is the end of a good life. And it really started me thinking about what it, palliative care is. And that's why actually when I started my internship and then even in, through my residency, I actually worked on the, on the palliative care service. Um, and I realized that every patient who has a cancer diagnosis should actually be introduced to palliative care upfront. And I think the challenge is that oftentimes we don't introduce them to palliative care we could be, until it's the end and then it's hospice and palliative care. Instead of thinking about people holistically, um, because palliative care goes beyond just hospice. And that's the challenge with the name, though. I feel like that's a problem with the name. I really think it should, you be, have to change yeah, the I think it should be something like, you know, support, patient support, or I don't know, psychosocial support. I don't know what it should be right. called. Even if you call psychosocial, people balk at that, too. Oh, yeah. Right. But it really, the journey in terms of people coming to terms with their disease um, is one that needs to start early. So to Tiff's point, having the discussions earlier is great. But but what you're talking about is the fact that we don't deal with death and dying well in this country. And so therefore we haven't developed the appropriate tools to have the conversations because to Tiff's point, I mean, I've had patients who, you know, they just are like, you're taking away my hope. You know, you're taking away my hope. I was like, well, I actually want to just be realistic with you, right? I want to have a realistic conversation about where we're at. I can tell you what radiation can do, and I can tell you what radiation can't do. You know, right. in this particular case, it's not going to cure your cancer, but my hope is that it's going to alleviate your pain, or my hope is that it's going to help this tumor to shrink, you know? But it's hard because some families are like, oh, thank you so much. And then others are just like, you know, you're taking away my hope and you're not allowing us to do X, Y, and Z. And you can't predict. Right. No, you can't. And that's why I said you have, you kind of have to be, you have to kind of choose what, how, what your approach is going to be and be okay with literally in the, in the, in the space of one clinic day from room to room, you know, Going right. from hero to to, to zero, and I say right hero to zero, literally. <laughs> you know, and I and I say that having lived that experience, mm. um, <laughs> you know, right. absolutely because I I and, and you you never want to take away people's hope. You're right. The thing about oncologists are is we are optimistic. Like you have to be to some point optimistic to do this, right? Like we want people to get better. We want the drugs to work. If you weren't heart optimist, like I don't think you could last in this job. I really don't. For me, I feel like when it's becoming clear, you know, that we're getting into space where the treatments are going to be less and less effective. I have that, I had that conversation. 
Um, and, and, you know, it was always fascinating because just like I said, some people were like, and, and what I would, how I would frame it is, um, we need to have a discussion about how, what you want your time to look like. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I would say there are, you know, we're at this point where maybe I've got another five drugs right. that are FDA approved that are indicated for you that I can give you, but this, we're at a point of diminishing returns. Right. Um, and we need to weigh how much benefit you're getting against what the toxicities are going to look like against, you know, um, how much time you're going to be spending here in infusion or maybe hospitalized with side effects or whatever, or not feeling your best or just mm-hmm. dealing with side effects and not being able to be out there doing what you want to do. Like, what do you want to do? What do you want this time to look like? Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, but can I just interrupt? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just make this point though, because I think you're right. You got to have that conversation with the patients, but the patients in turn need to have the skills to have that conversation with their family. Because it reminds me yeah. of the conversation we had with Tanya, right? So when she's talking about, you right. know, kind of getting your papers in order and that sort of thing and making sure you have a living will, you know, part of the challenge is that we are not having these conversations mm-hmm. with our right. families. And is there something to Z's point? Is there something that we can do as on, as oncologists to, yes. to encourage people to have those conversations with their family early in the course yeah. of treatment, you know, or is it, is that going to be seen as taking away hope? I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be preparation. Um, and even, I, I don't know. I would always let the patients know that I was there advocate and if they wanted to kind of make me the bad guy <laughs> that they can make me the bad guy mm-hmm. quote unquote. And, and see you now know? it's really hard so I've had two conversations this week one was via telemedicine yeah because that's the only way I could get the family together mm. right yeah. and, and and I mean it went as well as it could go but it's telemedicine and I'm doing this kind of discussion, yeah. right? And I'm doing this kind of discussion so everyone can be present. Mm-hmm. And the other was via telephone. I had the primary care. Even I, worse. So I used to be a receptionist in a former life. That skill has helped me immensely to do mm-hmm. conference calls yep. on, on, the, on the phone in, my, in the office. So I'm like, I have the primary care, I have the kids. We're conferenced in talking. And and then the other difficult thing um, now is the logistics, right? Mm. Because I can say, I can have the conversation, everybody's ready. Oh, you know what? I can't even get you in with palliative care. Oh, wow. Right? Hmm. Yeah. So they right? don't have appointments available? They don't have availability? Is- well, it's, it's, it's the same issues like with primary care, right? You know, usually when things like this happen, you want to move relatively quickly. Yes. Right. But but that speaks to the importance of yeah. getting them on board before it becomes an urgent. Right. So it Karen. does. And, and then you have the different appointments. Right. So you have your treatment appointments. And do you want to take a, another day, another mm-hmm. appointment when you may not feel as well? Yeah. It, I, I mean, it's, it's just it's, hard. It's, it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. And um with one conversation I had, the family, they just really needed someone to help around 
with household things. Mm-hmm. Right? They're like, look, if we can just have someone just to help us with some of these very specific things, we can help manage. And and there's sometimes only so much Medicare will pay for. So to Karen's point about having a family discussion early, mm-hmm. I mean, in really planning these things out, um, because as physicians, we really are limited sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have these grandiose ideas of what we want it to look like. And then you're mm-hmm. trying to put it into play in the span of a month. And, and it can be difficult. So. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three Black Dogs is available wherever you get your podcasts. And so, Karen, like, how, how can we start that discussion with families? So I, I tend to, um, again, I think COVID is making things more of a challenge, definitely, um, depending on where you work. Um, I know that um, pre-COVID, families can all be in the room and have those conversations. Um, it's a little bit easier for me as a radiation oncologist, because uh, depending on when they come to me, if they're coming to me for palliative radiation, that's an easy in, right? It's much harder, I think, for you as an oncologist when you may have a a, a new person with a, a stage one or stage two breast cancer that you want to be hopeful, and then all of a sudden you need to transition to having those conversations. Um, although, again, I do think having those conversations up front and early. So, for instance, um, I had a, um, a gentleman who um, had, it was actually a patient that I shared with, with Zanetta, um, who um, really had he had refractory disease, he had refractory lymphoma. And the question was, do we actually give radiation therapy with it, with the hope that it can help to shrink this big, massive abdominal tumor that he had and get him to the next phase of chemotherapy? And he just looked and he was like, I'm tired. I'm really tired. And his wife was in there, oh, but you can't do this. And I said, well, well, hold on. <laughs> you know, like she was like saying, you've got to get treated. You've got to do this. What about me? And I actually looked at her. I said, you know what? I hear you too. I understand this is a, this is difficult. I said, but this is his journey, and we've got to we've got to respect him. We've got to respect where he's at because, you know, he's been through so much. And imagine what it's like for him. He's used to taking care of you. He was used to being able to do. Imagine what that's like for him. And then he started crying, and then she started crying. And so sometimes it's about feeling the room, right? I mean, we all do this all the time. Sometimes we walk into a room, and be like, oh. Something ain't right here. We try to figure out what that is. And that's part of the skill set. This is why I think it's so important for clinicians to really feel the room and engage, use all of your senses um, and not just come in with your own agenda. That's the holistic approach. Um, and knowing when to have that conversation. But, you know, it was it was a it was a challenging conversation because she kept interrupting and saying, we've got to do this. And I'm like, this ain't about you. And of course, I had to do it with compassion. And I even shared with her, I said, you know, I understand this journey. I said, but let me tell you one of the things that hurt me the most with my husband's journey. Right. So I was able to use my own experience with J.D., and, you know, the last week of his life or last two weeks when he was just tired of all the surgeries and the procedures and the pain and stuff. And he didn't feel comfortable saying it to me. I think he wanted to feel strong, but he was telling Ashley and he was telling his mother. Right. And they weren't telling me. So nobody was communicating. And I felt like I didn't do right by him. I'm like, OK, I have the conversation with my patients and their families all the time, but I didn't have it with my mm-hmm. own husband. Right. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow. 
uh, that yeah. hurt me. Wow. And I said, please, yeah. please hear what he, please hear what your husband has to say. He's speaking mm-hmm. to you now. He's speaking to us. Please hear him. And I, I'm, I don't need for you guys to make a decision today about what you want to do, but go right. home and have a conversation. And I'm going to call you in two days, right? So I usually do that. I'll have this big old conversation and we'll be like, ah, there'll be tears and whatnot. And I'm like, don't make a decision today. I'm going to call you in two days and we'll talk. And oftentimes they'll call me ahead of time and said, patients decided not to go for treatment. You know, that's oftentimes what what I'll get even, and I don't even have to call them, you know, or I'll just call them and say, got your message, you know, let me know if there's anything you need sort of thing. Ms. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because, you know, I can think back now, yeah, man, several times where, uh, where I was saying, you know, I have, I have used that as a line, like you can make me the bad guy if you need to, because, um, Patients would tell me when they had me alone, like maybe they were hospitalized or something, you know, that they wanted to go on to hospice and that um, they didn't want to continue with active treatment. But exactly that. Right. That it's it was the family who wasn't ready to accept this um, and that they felt like they needed help in letting the family know what Mm -hmm. their decision was, Mm. you know? And I Mm -hmm. was like, well, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm used to going from hero to zero. So, um, (laughs) yeah, but that's, I think part of the the, practice that patients do that, that individual, that people don't respect. I think there are some really great things that happen in oncology, uh, especially with breast and heme, right? We are able to cure mm-hmm. many cancers, but there are many that we can't. And I yeah. do not think people appreciate um, the struggles that, that we as oncologists face with, we have to bridge a lot of these different issues. Oh, yeah. It's not just about the care of the patient. It's not just about what the treatment of the patient's going to be, but it's, it's really the family dynamics and thinking about mm-hmm. what what patients' desires are, um, and how to navigate that. I mean, these these are important communication issues, but strategies. But Z, what I was going to ask you is, what are some tools that you would suggest to patients and to families, right? Uh, what are some ways that maybe they can um, start to be um, more introspective, or to really even to maybe patients need to be the ones to, to is you know to initiate that conversation, all right, around goals of care. I don't know. Yeah, I I really like what Tiffany said with what do you want this time to look like? And so, you know, really one of the things that I like to try to tell my patients, I, I, I try my very best to tell them my expectations. So on my little paper, you know, whether I write it or tell it, my goal of treatment is cure. The likelihood of cure is this much. Or, unfortunately, I can't take this disease away. My goal is to help you maintain your quality of life for as long as possible. And when that's not happening, um, we really need to have discussions about what you would want. Um, I, I think from a patient perspective, really being open to hearing and allowing the oncologist to tell you the truth. Mm. 
because mm. I've had I, I, I've had some people who said, I don't want to know, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to know. And, and it really, yeah. yes, if you don't want to know, we're not going to tell you. Mm. Yes, that's an but important you really, point. You really want to really, know. You really want to know. Yes. You, you really want to know. Can I tell you that's an important point? It's an important conversation for our black patients. I, I must yeah. say, I think I've had more black yeah. patients who say they don't want to know. I was like, no, yeah. no, what you need to know. Like, you need to understand. I mean, educated black women. I, I've had a PhD you know, person was like, I don't even want to know. And I'm like, oh, and it makes it hard. It makes it hard to really have that trusting relationship, right? Yeah. Because you do want to be open. But to your point, if patients say they don't want to know, we, we're not going to disclose it. Now, here's one interesting thing that I think is really um, reminds me of the conversation we had with Tanya. I don't know if y'all saw on, I think it was on social media that um, uh, Chadwick, Chad, Bozeman. Chadwick Bozeman <laughs> yeah. does uh, not uh, have friggin' will. Okay, so. Will. And I thought about okay. this. I was like, see, Come I on didn't now. see that. Replay the line. Come on now. His <laughs> wife, and you know, he, they got married not that long ago, but his wife now had to open up, go probate, go through probate court. Come yeah. on now. So here's the thing. This is another thing that I don't care how good your prognosis is. You know, you have a cancer diagnosis, put a will together, right? Like that's number one. Number yeah. two, you've got kids. If you have yeah. kids, put a will together, Number, you know? Uh-huh. And frankly, I feel like if you have, you know, if you're married, even like you need to put a will together or or you have something like some people don't have anything and that's OK and you don't need a will. But if you own a home or whatever, but put you a will still together. have pictures, you, you still have, pictures. have family pictures, <laughs> the family pictures need to be divided. And the the family pictures <laughs> in, in grandma's dishes. Well, people throw blows over yeah, their picture. Get, get a will done. And there are resources to help. Facts. with that. Um, I couldn't believe it. It's just I, I saw it and I was like, I got to bring this up on the call. Yeah, but I, I, I did not see that. Yeah, and, and, girl, yeah, no will. Wife in probate court. Oh, oh, that's horrible. And and so I was having a conversation um, a while back, and Tiffany, I think I was like you, where I was like, you know what, I'm gonna let everybody know specifics. You know, I am treating you based on this trial and based on this mm-hmm. trial, 75% of people will be cured of this disease, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm happy. I'm like, and I remember one particular scenario where I said this and the patient looked at me and it was like all the air left the room mm-hmm. and the patient was like, that's it. Mm. Like you telling me that there's a 25% chance this is not going to work. That's pretty high. Mm. And, and I was, I, I, I literally started stuttering like that. Yeah. Cause for us, that's really, I like, that's, Ooh, that's that's big. Great. Yeah. yeah. Because I was like, look, we yeah. got to do this 75%, you know, this is good odds. Yeah. And it was just like, we, for the next three to four visits, we had to, we kept going over that number. But to your original point, Zanetta, do we not, I think we don't do a good job because I think that when people in some aspects, right, of doing this, because like you said, you presented this as a cure, which had a 75% chance of, I don't know what, being disease free at five years or something, whatever um, whatever the study was that you were looking at. But I think when 
patients or people who, who aren't oncologists hear that, they think 100%. Right. Right? Right. And we're like, yeah. no, it's not 100, but it's right. 92, 93, which mm-hmm. for us is really good. But right. again, they hear the know, 8%. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I will say it was hard. Like, so we kept going over it. I kept yeah, saying why. It, it, and I will say by our most recent visit, you know, the person had come to terms and was like, you know what? I'm a numbers person. So because there's a 25% chance, I'm living my life. I went and bought this. I went and okay, did this. And right. I, <laughs> okay. Well, and I was like, you know what? You Screw know, it. I'm, I'm doing it. <laughs> and and I was just thinking, I was like, man, that that was we really had to really work through it. And it took a lot of energy and effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eventually we we kind of made it through and you know, there's understanding and expectation, but yeah. um so I think, you know, we, we I think in terms of leaving people with something, a takeaway, and number one, I think patients should say, put should ask the, their their oncologist, what are, what are the goals of this treatment? I, mm-hmm. I think that that's a question that they can ask, and then it opens the door, because there are some oncologists who don't have that conversation. I'm just going to be honest with you. I know there are some oncologists who don't have that discussion in terms of what the expectations are, right? So I know Z, you do because your patients would come with their little paper folded up. You know that they're, they're, they're they would come with this long. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> right notes on the on the um the paper for the for the stretcher right. thing in the room. The surgeons have seen my papers. They're like, <sighs> yeah, I was looking at your paper and uh... it's crazy. <laughs> but but that's you know not not everyone does that. So I do think that that's something that you know, when patients start a journey, doesn't matter where they are in the journey, say, well, what if they're starting a new therapy? So say they have metastatic breast cancer, for instance, and they're starting a new therapy. So so what are the expectations with this? Um, mm-hmm. And then that way it empowers the patient. The patient's empowered because they're the one bringing the question up. But to your point, they have to be open, ready to hear, right? That's the, that's the part that can be more of a challenge. Um, and I know I've had I've had family members who ask that question. They said, "Well, what what are the what are the chances? What are we, what are we doing here?" But what I do is I look at the patient and saying, "Is this what you do? You want to hear this? Are you interested in this information? Because it's not about the family again. This the journey is not about the family. The family is a part of the journey, but I really am very mindful when I have the patient and their family in the room, and the family members are the one asking about prognosis and all that sort of stuff. I always kind of check in with the patient and make sure that they're interested and willing to hear, because if they're not ready to hear it, then that can actually impact their outcomes as well if they start to perseverate on things. (laughs) Now, this idea, Karen, that you said about how we approach death and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, the life cycle and all of that in the U.S., you know, I used to say a lot, it, it almost feels like um, death is optional, right? Mm. Wow. And it's not. And, it's not. Um, wow. and that's probably, you know, one of the, the best things for me about growing up in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Right. That, mm-hmm. Huh? Oh, go on. I'm just thinking about funerals and things in New Orleans. Well, funerals, but it's the idea that we sort of live with this idea that death is a part of life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, so our, our funerals are a celebration of the person's life. Yes. 
Right. Um, but also that once a person is gone, that you continue to talk about them, you continue like we don't have this thing of like, oh, somebody dies. So then like you can't like mention their names and it's like mm-hmm. a very painful thing. Like we, you know, people die. We still talk about them. We joke about them. You know, we, we still joke about the things that we would joke about when they were here so that they sort of, their memory lives on, they right? And so, live. Like my kids, um, I have an aunt who was like a second mother to me. She died way before my kids were even thought about, right? But they know her and they know some of her characteristics because we say stuff like, Lord, if this is an Ed Carroll, like if she's not somewhere, you know, and we laugh about it and we, and so their memories live on. And like, you see that generations of people know about your family members and all of that. So yeah, I would just say, I think that's um, another thing that was a little bit odd for me, <laughs> leaving New Orleans and interacting with folks outside of it, that this approach to death was so different. I mean, it's not like, you know, people, we're not afraid of it and all of that, but it is very much a part of life. And yeah. we talk about it a lot, all the time, <laughs> yeah, not all the time, but it's just like, it's just like, it's, as natural, it's as natural <laughs> as a birth. Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, shame. but we do not deal with end of life issues wellness in this country. And yeah, no, I agree. And it doesn't mean it's not painful when you lose somebody that you oh, love, especially if they, right. if they're, if they're dying of cancer and maybe they were right. young and, you know, yes, there's all of right. that, but we've, I like, I like that, that we think that death is optional. Yeah. Like, well, that's the, you're right. Like, yes. Depending yeah. on if I was a hero or a zero in the discussion that I was yeah. having. Right. It's fascinating. Um, that it was like, you know, we, we, we have to talk about it. And, and some people did not appreciate, I, I think on days when I was like particularly tired and just kind of like at, at the end of my rope, sometimes you say things that people don't take in the best way, yeah. you know, in interactions. And so sometimes we would have these very deep discussions, you know, these kind of discussions and, and I would say, well, we, everybody dies, you know, and oh, people yeah. thought that I was being very, I'm going to tell the patient excellence. The hospital. You, and there's three emails right there. Yep. You know, I, I've been recorded a lot in my That's career. three emails. And I didn't mean it to be flippant yeah. at all. Right, right. You know, and, and I hope that people who know me know that that, you right, know, right, right, really right, right. am not like that. But, but that, but that's the fact, like we all die. And I think the thing is, you got to think about what you want your life to look like. Yeah. Regardless, like yes. if you have cancer yes. or you don't, if you have mm-hmm. an illness or you don't, I think your guiding thing is like, what do I want my life to look like? And that is what I'm going for. Cheers. Yes. That's it. That's, That's important. And just like right. your patient Z, why did it take him thinking that he might have a 25% chance of dying for him to start living? Right. Ooh. Right. We right. need to be living every day as if it's our last day, because it could be. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't know. We so, don't know. But I think, you know, we, we've we got to try to encourage, you know, our patients to, to live. Like, you know, just, right. just live your life. And it's, yes. it, it's, it's harder for some because some life situation is a challenge just yeah. from the jump. And then you add cancer on top of it and it becomes oh, burdensome. Yes. 
yeah. it's become burdensome. Um, but this is where trying to identify resources, and I know it's much harder in the community. Like you, you're talking about um, Zanetta. Right. You know, when I, I do believe palliative care should be a part of the oncology journey from the from day one. But it's much harder in a community setting where you might not have palliative care integrated versus being in a big comprehensive cancer center where they're right there and maybe you can have an appointment the same day or maybe they can have an appointment while they're in infusion, right? right. Um, so it is very different. And I think um, this is what I'm hoping one of the good things that comes out of COVID is the ability to do, you know, right. a virtual visits um, to really ease the burden on patients so that they can yeah. live their life and that they're not spending yeah, every waking minute in the doctor's it, office. Right? Yes, right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, and and all and you got and the other thing I think is is really cliche, but is true that it's the day it's the small stuff, you know, that you have to focus on yeah. that you that bring you joy in the everyday, the small stuff that you can access every day, you know, and just being mindful of those things and finding joy in those things. And and what did Brene Brown say? She said gratitude. Yes. Gratitude. And there is mm -hmm. something that every single one of us could be grateful for every day. Yep. It could be yep. as simple as waking up, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. that is the thing that actually helps to to put people on this pathway to living. Yeah. And, and now I remember the, the lyric, it was everybody dies, but not everybody lives. Wow. I'll remember the song after we get off the call. Yeah, sure. it, it's all good. Three Black Dots is not intended as medical advice. All opinions are our own. Three Black Dots is produced by Wings Productions. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three Black Dots is available wherever you get your podcasts.